So we're still in Matthew. We're still in our Christmas series. It's not quite a Christmas series anymore, but we're still in Matthew. Uh, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, so you can turn there if you've got it. Um, and it's about Jesus battling the devil. Like, not fighting him like superhero with a sword, but like actually going face to face and having the conversation with Satan about, you know, who he is and what his identity is. Um, so it's actually a really helpful story, which seems a little bit weird. Like, it's this story that feels kind of epic on the front end, like Jesus versus Satan, right? But when you read through it, it's actually really, really helpful. And I say that because as I was studying for this, I kept coming, like, I kept reading stuff that was different or new and not like, different people arguing with other people, but just like more and more and more helpful things, right? So there's a ton here. I, I was thinking about it. I could probably preach four weeks on this and, and get new stuff every time. I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. Uh, there's like this whole thought that this is a handbook sort of on how to deal with temptation. Like Jesus sort of shows us the way to deal with temptation. And that's really helpful. And I don't have time for that this morning as much as I would love to do that. There's also the whole idea of like how Jesus uses scripture. Like Jesus uses scripture in a very unique way here. It's, it's not something that we necessarily pay attention to. But again, I don't have time to cover all of that, right? And then there's also this idea, and this one's been debated, debated for 2,000 years, right? It's, so Jesus is God, and we know that God doesn't sin, and God doesn't want to sin, right? He doesn't want evil at all. That's not a thing that God does. And so we have Jesus, who's fully God. So you're like, okay, there's that. And then Jesus is also a human being, and human beings, it seems like human beings sin quite a bit, just observationally. It also seems like a lot of human beings want to sin, like they really enjoy sinning. Again, that's purely observational, but Jesus is a human being. And so you have to sort of reconcile like Jesus is God and, and God doesn't sin with Jesus is fully human and humans are constantly tempted. And so we have to sort of figure out what it means that Jesus was tempted, right? And again, that's a thing, that's a conversation that's been going on for 2,000 years. There's no chance that I can resolve that this morning or, or bring that to a conclusion that everybody's going to settle on, right? Because you're like, okay, God doesn't sin. Jesus is God. Yes, absolutely. People, human beings are tempted and sin and Jesus was fully human. Jesus was fully human. And yet, like there's that conflict, right? So we're not going to settle that this morning either. The focus of our series is Jesus as king. Like that's kind of the thing that we're really talking about is Jesus coming into his own as the king in this, this new phase of ministry. And so that's going to be a big chunk of, of what we are, are dealing with, is that Jesus as our king wins victory over Satan. And so Jesus' victory over Satan becomes sort of our victory over Satan because of who he is. So like I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. I'm just going to read through the whole thing, and then once we're done with that, we'll kind of tear it apart piece by piece. Starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led... Uh, up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, 
All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The first thing that I want to kind of point out, and this is maybe the first sticking point for us, is that Jesus was actually led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Um, so Jesus has this new commission coming off of baptism. Like if you remember from, from last week, Jesus is baptized. It's very public. There's a bunch of people there. And as he comes out of the water, right, there's this light from heaven. There's this voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. And the Holy Spirit descends on him in a way that people can see. Like there's a visible change in Jesus. And it's like, okay, he's the Messiah. He's the one that we know for sure is going to be the chosen one of God. And now what? Right? And so this is a great moment. If you're kicking off like a new career, right? Like everybody sees like he's the one, he's the guy, he's the one that we need to follow. And Jesus follows that up by, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? And we would all assume start teaching. Immediately start teaching, start doing miracles. Everybody's paying attention. Everybody's like, he might be the one, right? So prove it. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, we're actually gonna go to the wilderness. We're gonna go to the middle of nowhere and we're gonna camp out there and we're going to go from there. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus away from the crowds. He leads him away from publicity. He leads him away from what it looks like the next step of his ministry ought to be. And he brings him out to the middle of nowhere. And he's like, just sit there for a month. Right? It's, it's the worst decision career-wise that you can make. Right? Like, if he's, if he's like, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be the one that brings everybody to me. And then it's like, okay, you're famous now capitalize on your, on your sudden fame, right? Like you went virile, everybody knows who you are, now's your chance. And he, the Holy Spirit's like, no, that's not the plan. Go camp in the desert. And then the wilderness, we see the wilderness, we're like, okay, so the middle of nowhere, right? Like that's kind of what it is. It's the middle of nowhere. But it's not just like biblically, the wilderness isn't just the middle of nowhere. There's a long history of people going to the middle of nowhere, into the wilderness, in order to refocus their relationship on God, to seek God in a new way, either before they're going into a new phase in ministry or after they've been through some struggle or actually because they sort of need to refocus on, on who God is, right? So you think of Moses, right? The guy, he was in the, he had the burning bush. Before he led the people of Israel out of Egypt, there was this burning bush. Where was that? It was in the wilderness. He was there for 40 years before that bush was there, right? Like, so he spent 40 years in the wilderness not doing anything because that's where God had him. Uh, and then Israel, after Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they were disobedient. And God's like, you need to refocus on what your priorities. So you're going to take some time in the wilderness to remind yourselves that you need to rely on me. Right, David, David, he kills Goliath. He's very popular with the people. And then suddenly Saul decides to kill him. And so he hides in the wilderness for like a decade while he's sort of waiting like, okay, God, you promised that I would be king What's the next step? And God just had him in the wilderness. And even Elijah, we talked about Elijah in the fall. He spent a lot of time between those big moments with the big miracles in the wilderness by himself, focused on, on what God was doing. And so when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, this is, this is sort of in that vein of he's going to refocus on God. He's going to spend some time seeking God's face and, and what God's calling him to do in his ministry. And so as we look at this, we have to recognize that God had a very specific plan for Jesus' ministry. And that plan started with the baptism, 
And then the next step was go into the wilderness, be alone, and, and refocus. And when we reflect on our own lives, sort of with that in, in, in mind, what we realize is that a lot of times we actively try to avoid going into the wilderness. In fact, we'll, we'll sort of take steps to avoid going into the wilderness. And, and I'm talking metaphorically, obviously, right? So we don't want to go to the place where we're going to struggle and have to rely on God alone. We don't want to go to the place where we're not surrounded by friends and family that are going to carry us. We don't want to go to the place where it's difficult and, and hard and, and spiritually dry. We don't want to go to those places. We try and avoid those places. And yet, for Jesus, that was where the Holy Spirit led him. And so we can't pretend like God doesn't ever want us to go through hard things. We can't pretend that like, okay, well, I follow God, and so he's always going to make me like happy and fulfilled and wonderfully content in every single situation. The fact of the matter is, is that there's going to be times when God puts us in circumstances, in situations that it's hard, that we have to be focused on him in order to get through. It's just the reality of it. And what happens is that if we do that, if we come to God and rely on him in those fresh ways, then we see spiritual growth coming out of that. I was reading this week uh, an article on, on Tim Keller. So he's an author. He's written a bunch of Christian books. He was a pastor in, in New York City for a lot of years before he just stopped and focused on his writing. Um, and he was diagnosed with pancreatic ca cancer a couple years back, like it was during the pandemic. And he, he wrote this. This is going to sound like an exaggeration. My wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life, the kind of spiritual life we had before the cancer. Never. Like he went, he still, he still has cancer, right? He's probably going to die of it. And he's saying, the relationship that I have with God as a result of the difficulty of facing my own death is worth it because it brings me into a fresh relationship with God. So as, as we struggle with things, as we deal with difficult times, we have to be able to say, you know what, this is hard, but if this causes me to refocus on God, if this pushes me closer and closer to a relationship with, with Jesus, then it ought to be worth it. It will end up being worth it. Obviously, we can squander that, we can ignore that, we can just be selfish in that, and it's probably not going to come out in the end that it's a positive. But if we if we allow God to lead us into those hard places, and if we focus and rely on him through those hard places, then it comes out and it's worth it. Our, our big idea for today is this, that Jesus walked through temptation like we do and has already won the battle for us. And I say that here because Jesus started off like he walked through temptation, but he knew what he was going into. He prepared like he was walking into a difficult time and he knew that and he didn't avoid that. And you know what? He won. And so he's the example. And as we look at what he did and what we can learn from that, what we'll realize is that he won for us and coming out the other side, we can have victory because of the Jesus, victory that Jesus had. So let's look at the, the temptations kind of one by one. Uh, the first one is in verse 2. It says, after 40 days of, and 40 nights, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation is turn these stones into bread. And Jesus is hungry. <laughs> like there's not really where, like he hasn't eaten for a month. 
right? Like, he's not just kind of hungry. He's not like, oh, I skipped breakfast this morning. I'm a little hungry for lunch. Like, he's, he's in starvation mode. Like, he's literally starving. He's already weak. He's already run down. Like, you think of, like, when you're weakest, right? They're like, emotionally, you're less in control when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, right? Like, that's kind of the, he's all of those. Like, he's alone by himself in the desert for a month. He's, he's emotionally, physically, he's in the worst possible case in order to, to be tempted. And Satan comes and he's like, okay, I'm going to make you this offer. And it's a conditional offer. If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. So the first half of it is this trap, if you're the son of God. He's questioning Jesus' identity. God said, this is my beloved son. If that's true, is that true? Jesus, you've been starving in the desert for a month. Are you sure that you're the son of God? Like, it doesn't seem like God would do that to you. It seems like if you were the son of God, you would have had food along the way. You would be a lot healthier and happier right now. Like, if you're the son of God. So we're going to leave that one like that's debatable. But if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. You have the authority to do that. Right? Like, you have the ability to do that if you're truly the Son of God. So, it's sort of this two-handed piece where it's like, okay, there's the question on whether or not you're the Son of God, and if you truly are the Son of God, take control, do this, you cannot be hungry anymore. You have that ability. And Jesus does have the power to do that. Like, we see later on, he can turn water into wine. It doesn't seem like stones to bread is that much different. He multiplies bread. Like, he's got a lot of power over natural things. So it seems like he for sure could have if he would have wanted to. The trap is this, though. If you're the son of God, assumes that God doesn't want him to go through these hard times. Right, so Jesus' answer is, is really profound. It's not about the bread. It's not about his identity. It's not about the food. It's about how much he trusts God. Right, like he says, okay, I actually am the son of God. We're not debating that. Jesus' answer is, it's not about the bread. It's about obedience to God. And if God didn't lead me to make the stones into bread, then I'm not going to do it. If he leads me to be hungry in the wilderness, then I am going to do it. It has nothing to do with the if-then, like debating about what God called me to do. It's about this is what God said. Jesus says, it's because I'm the son of God, I have a deep, real, lasting relationship with God, and therefore I'm going to be obedient to him regardless of circumstances. And, and we actually struggle with this dichotomy too. It's not a foreign temptation to us. Now, we don't have the ability to make stones to bread, right? But, but often, we go through those hard times, and the first thing that pops into us is, does God love me? Like, if God loved me, would I have to go through this? If God truly loved me, if I really had a great relationship with God, would this be this hard? Right? Like, that's, that's a thing. That's a legitimate question that we struggle with. If I have a good relationship with God, if God truly loves me, then why am I going through this hard thing? And on the other hand, we struggle with, I'm a child of God, I know that God loves me, therefore, this thing that I want must be okay. Right, like, I, Jesus was hungry, he was starving, it wasn't wrong for him to want bread. It was wrong for him to use his power in a way that God hadn't commanded him to. But, but what we do is we say, well, because it's not wrong for me to want bread, therefore I can eat all the bread I want, and that's not offensive to God. And God's like, no, I didn't tell you to have bread. I didn't tell you to do that. You need to be obedient. Like, we make the choice, I'm going to do what I want because I'm a child of God, and, and so God loves me, so whatever I do, it's fine. 
right? And that's, that's the choice that we sometimes make. So we shift our identity, like, as, because I'm the child of God, therefore I get to do this. David Platt says it this way. The enemy is so deadly in the way he attacks our desires. He has convinced many followers of Christ that their desires for sin define who they are. But that is not true, Christian. You are a child of God. And just because you are his child does not mean that you will never want something that doesn't accord with God's will. You will fight temptations for 40 days, in some cases 40 years. You may even have to battle your entire life. So if the Holy Spirit leads us into the wilderness and we're missing something, we want something, that doesn't mean that it's fine for us to just do whatever we want in order to get that. Right, like it ultimately comes back to what does God say? Do I trust what God says? Like we think about what we're missing, what God owes us, all these different things. Like I'm a child of God, therefore I want this. And that's not how it works. So I've got two applications questions here and all the application questions are gonna be in pairs and I'll, I'll coalesce them in the end. I'll bring them together at the end. The first question is this, how confident am I that God loves me in spite of circumstances. Meaning, when I'm going through a hard time, do I actually believe that God loves me even though I'm going through this? And the second question is, what are some things that I'm tempted to prioritize over my relationship with Jesus? Some things that I say, well, I know that God loves me and I know he hasn't really said this is okay, but I'm a child of God, I'll just ask forgiveness when it's done and I'm gonna do this thing that I I know is probably wrong. So the question, like, do we rest in the love of God when things are hard? Or, or do we go out and grab the things that we want instead of patiently waiting for him? So that's, that's the first temptation. And the second one ends up being feeling a little bit similar. Uh, verse 5, it says, The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in some ways, this is like a natural progression from the first temptation, right? So Jesus is saying, God will supply everything that I need. I'm going to rely on God. And Satan's like, you want to rely on God? I'll show you how you can rely on God even more. Like, this is like the bonus level of relying on God that God didn't tell you about, right? And it's the same trap in some ways because it's if you're the son of God. Like, it starts off, okay, you said you're the son of God. You said you're going to rely on God. I'm going to accept that. You are the son of God. If you're the son of God, then you ought to be able to do this thing instead. It's not about trusting God. It's about putting God in a position that he doesn't want to be in. Right? So it's, it's more than just like, okay, if you trust God, if you rely on God, he'll carry you through this. But like, how much is he going to carry me through? Like, what's the extent of God loving me and caring for me through these circumstances? So Satan, it's actually in Psalm 91, right? So that's the, the verse that Satan grabs. He's like, all right, so Jesus, if you, if you rely on God, 
then you ought to be able to do this because God promised that you won't slip and fall, you won't hurt yourself. Like that's the promise that God gives. The thing is that Satan pulls this out of context because if you read Psalm 91, it starts off with worship. It's like, God, you're so great. I want to be obedient to you. I want everything that I do to be conformed to what you asked me to do. I want to submit my life to you. And then when I do that, like the response that you have to me being obedient is that you protect me and you maintain me. And Satan says, okay, let's take the promise out of that and let's not make it about what this person is saying to God about how he wants to live his life. We'll just, we'll just remove it from that desire. We'll just say, well, God promised that he'll do this, right? So he, he sort of tears it out of context. And, and so he says, if you're God's son, he has to protect you. He doesn't have a choice. You've got God in a trap. He can't not protect you. You can do whatever you want. God has to protect you. And Jesus' response is, don't try to trap God, <laughs> right? Which, it seems like good advice, but <laughs> Satan's like, okay, we've set this up. God has to protect you. Okay, you can do whatever you want, and God has to protect you, so go do what you want. And Jesus is like, it doesn't really work like that. Like, if you respond to God like, I've got you trapped now, it doesn't go well. The whole heart attitude of trying to trap God is the wrong direction. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? But then 6.16 talks about as they tempted him at Massah. Like, what is Massah, right? So, there's this sort of thread through scripture about when the people, children of Israel tempted God, right? So they came to this place in the desert. They're being led out of slavery from Egypt. They come to this place in the desert. They're all thirsty. They drink this water and it's bitter and they're angry about it. And they're like, God, actually Messiah is there was no water. So there's no water. They're angry about the fact that they're thirsty and they're like, God, you brought us out of slavery just to kill us with thirst. We don't like what you're doing. Right? And so Moses goes and he's like, all right, well, God said we have to have water. So then Moses supernaturally has this water flow out of the rock. Right? So God says, Moses, speak to the rock. Moses hits the rock. Water comes out. The people drink. But the people's attitude wasn't, Lord, we're thirsty. We trust you. We love you. Please provide for us. It was, God, you owe us water. We're in the desert. We're thirsty. We're bent out of shape about this. Give us what we want. Right? And so God did provide for them in that situation. Right? But God forever after that, like there's a bunch of times in scripture where he's like, remember at Massah and this other spot, Meribah, where you grumbled and complained and had a bad attitude? Yeah, don't be like that. Like, I will provide for you, but it sure would be great if you could have an attitude of like, Lord, we love you and we trust you and we know that you're going to provide for us rather than give me what I want, right? It's the wrong attitude. Think of it this way. This is a little bit more practical. Think of it this way. If I come on Friday night and I tell my boys, I'm like, all right, boys, tomorrow morning, we're having pancakes, right? What's the response I want? Yay, pancakes, right? Like, that's what I'm hoping for. If I say we're having pancakes and they're like, okay, well, here's my plan for tomorrow morning. I'm sleeping in until 1030, but I want to make the pancakes. So don't make any pancakes before I get up and, you know, I'm ready to go. And also, these are the kind of syrups that I want. If we don't have those, you need to run to Kroger tonight and make sure that those are in stock. Also, um, you know, I'm going to be leaving at like 1115. So we've got to start like right on time to make sure you're like, whoa, 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 time out. Cereal morning tomorrow. We're not doing pancakes. Right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, this is, this is supposed to be a fun, good thing that we can do together, not a you list out your demands for the morning. Like, no, I, I love you and I'll get you breakfast for sure, but also let's have a little gratefulness in there, right? And so it's, it's like our attitude toward what God promised us, toward what God wants to give us, dictates 
sort of how much God can actually bless us. If we're going to have a bad attitude, God's like, I can't give you the good stuff that I'd love to give you. Your attitude's terrible. Like, you're ruining it with your attitude. There's a level of understanding of who God is and what he wants to accomplish in our lives that allows us to say, you know what, God? You're good. You've got a plan. I'm struggling right now, but I'm going to trust you that you're going to take care of it. I'm going to place myself under you and just allow you to be God and for you to provide for my needs. And Satan's saying, nope, go out and grab the promises. And, and don't, doesn't matter what you think God wants you to do. It doesn't matter what God said other than like, you've got this promise, just run with it as far as you possibly can. And then if, you know, if that goes badly for you, you can blame God. That's not how it works. So again, two questions. How confident am I that God is working for my good? Whether or not I can see it. Right? Because if God is working for my good, if he wants to fulfill those promises, then I can just say, okay, Lord, this is what you asked me to do. I'm going to do that because I know that is best. And I'm going to trust you that you will fulfill your promises to me because you're God, but also because I'm honestly trying to like do the things you asked me to. Not that God needs us to obey to fulfill his promises. It's just, it goes a lot smoother for us when it goes that way, right? Like if Jesus had jumped off the temple, would he have been hurt? Ugh. <laughs> right? It's not that he, no, he was going to die on the cross. We know that. At the same time, like hypothetically, you're like, that seems like a bad hiccup in God's plan. Like you didn't think that one through, right? So how confident am I that God is working for my good? Because Jesus is like, I'm at the pinnacle of this temple. At the end of the day, I know what God has for me, and I'm going to trust that God's going to protect me when he needs to protect me. And I'm not going to try and demand that he protect me in times when that wasn't the expectation. And then the other question is, what areas of my life do I try to control what God will do? What parts of my life do I say, okay, God said this, I'm going to grab this and manipulate this to get what I want out of God. I'm going to try and make God into a big vending machine that has to do what I want because I gave him what he said. Like, that's not how God works. Our response to God's promises need to include the understanding of the why that he made them. Right? He loves us and he wants us to have a relationship with him. And so he promises things to us based on, I want you to love me and I want you to realize that that's what's best for you. And so if, you, if you're obedient, then you realize some of these promises, those are for you. To, but if you try and manipulate it, you've missed the entire point. The third temptation. Again, the, temple, the verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered by Satan's questions about his identity, right? Like both of the first two have been conditional. If you're the son of God, you ought to be able to do this. And Jesus is like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. So the third temptation is really sort of accepting who Jesus is. He's like, all right, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're going to rule and reign. Let's make this easy, right? Like, let's avoid all the problems. Let's make this easy. So the problem isn't the end result. The problem isn't the nations of the world bowing down and submitting to Jesus. That's actually going to happen, right? So the thing that Satan's offering isn't the problem. 
the path to what he's offering is the problem. Right? Like he's saying we can shortcut the cross and get you straight to the end of Revelation if you just worship me now. Like that's the offer. And Jesus is for sure the king. In fact, whether or not Satan can offer the, the nations of the earth bowing to Jesus is really the question, right? Like, does Satan have that kind of power? Like, maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, we know that Jesus will. Like, Jesus has that authority, and ultimately, that's what's going to end up. So Satan's really saying, let's, let's take a shortcut. Let's skip a couple chapters and not deal with the hard pieces. Let's just go to the fun part at the end. And, and this worship me, the Satan, when Satan says bow to me, he's not saying, like, worship me as God. He's saying, submit to me as your ruler, like, so it's not like full worship. And yet Jesus is like, no, no, it's not about that. It's about the fact that I'm only submitting to God. This is especially interesting when we think about what the kingdom of heaven is. Like we talked about this last week. We'll talk about it again a bunch. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule over the world and our participation in it with our whole hearts, right? So if that's what the kingdom of heaven is, then Jesus submitting to Satan prevents the kingdom of happening <laughs> because Jesus would then not be submitted to God. He'd be submitted to Satan, which sort of like cuts out the whole point of the kingdom. So the kingdom is God accomplishing things on earth now, yes, and also ultimately being in control, but there's not a way to avoid submitting to Jesus and get to that end. Like, Satan says, God can be in charge if you submit to me. But that pulls Jesus out from what the kingdom ought to be. And Jesus' response is obviously no, right? Like, he's not going to submit to Satan. Specifically, he's not going to shortcut God's plan. He's not going to try and accomplish what God has said needs to happen by doing what he wants to do or what's easiest for him in the moment. He's saying the only way to legitimately serve God is to serve God God's way. Like you don't get to God's ends by not following God's means. It's not about serving him ultimately, right? Like Jesus doesn't say, well, in the end, I'll just serve Jesus. He says, I need to serve him every step of the way. Every piece of my life needs to be submitted to God if I'm going to actually end up where God wants me to be. It's about acknowledging God as my Lord today. It's about acknowledging Jesus today, not at the end. And, and we struggle with this. We struggle with this one a lot, right? Because we know, we know where we ought to be, and we sometimes see shortcuts to that, or we think, see things that we think are shortcuts to that. If you doubt me on this, look at politics, man. Like, everybody has this glorious plan of where we can be. And everybody's going to use the most dirty, underhanded, sneaky tactics to get there. Right? And what you discover is, when you use sneaky, underhanded, dirty tactics to get somewhere, at the end, you're a dirty, underhanded person. Like, that becomes who you are, right? Like, if you use those tactics, that's what you become. And so when Jesus says, I'm not going to submit to you now, he's saying, no step of the way can I choose to not to submit to God and not have that be a problem. Like, there's no way that I can be like, well, I can be mean and vindictive and then use that for a good end. Like, no, now you're mean and vindictive. That's a problem. You don't, you're not allowed to be like a vicious, cruel person as long as you like point it in the right direction. Because you're imperfect. You don't know what the right direction is. And also, you're not supposed to be vicious and cruel. 
Like, you're not allowed to do that. That's not who God calls us to be. You're not allowed to like, well, we'll let certain people die if they're the wrong kind of people. Like, the right people will be really good to, but the wrong people, like, whatever, it doesn't matter what happens to them. You're not allowed to say, well, I'm going to do a bunch of bad things in order to get enough power that I can do a bunch of good things. Like, nope, at the end of that, you, were, you did bad things to grab power. Like, that, that becomes its own thing. It's problematic all by itself. And the, the whole, our whole lives are like, okay, there's this good thing that I want. How am I going to get there? Because it doesn't seem like doing things the right way is the fastest path. Right? And so we're always tempted to sort of say, I'm going to shortcut the good path and I'm going to take the fast, easy path to get what I want. It's a good thing. It's fine. But that's not what God calls us to do. It actually is a deal with the devil. Right? Like that's what Jesus is like. This is a deal with the devil to do the, the right thing the wrong way. First question here, how confident am I that God's path is truly the best. Now, <laughs> we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount in a couple weeks. Like, that's kind of the next major series. Like, that's the next series. The path that God calls us to do is really tough. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. But at the end of it, that means that we're submitted to God the whole time. We don't get to skip out on what God's calling us to. If we really truly believe that God is God and he knows what's best and he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, then we have to say every single step that he calls me to is the right step for me today, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much I dislike it. And then my second application question is, what are some things that I'm tempted to do my way rather than the way God commanded? Like there's lots of areas in our lives, in, in relationships, in work, in school, there's good things that we want and we're like, you know what? I know I can make this easier if I do these other things that I know are wrong. And really what that reveals is that I don't, I don't trust God the way that I want to, I ought to. So that's sort of the three, the three temptations. And, and what I want to do is I want to look now at the aftermath. First for Jesus and then sort of what we learn as a whole when we pull those things out. Jesus goes through this epic battle, right? He has this, this battle of wits with the accuser. He, has, he deals with these temptations, these things that, that he ought to want, these things that are in front of him that seem like good things but are actually disobedient to God. And at the end, he's just as more exhausted than he was at the beginning, right? And so verse 11 says, the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There are seasons of trial and difficulty and temptation in our lives. There are also seasons of rest, right? So we're gonna go through hard times. We're gonna struggle with things. We're gonna have difficult things in front of us. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. That means that, you know, it could mean that you're just following him, right? And, and there comes a point you're struggling and, and when you're actually at the end, then God's gonna say, you know what? I'm gonna give you a break right? Our, our lives consist of these seasons. And what we realize at the end is a lot of times we had a lot of growth in the seasons of struggle, in the seasons of temptation, and we didn't realize it until we got to the season of rest, right? And so if you're in a season of rest right now, be aware that there's going to be another season of struggle in front of you, right? Like just be prepared for that. If you're in a season of struggle, be aware there's going to come a point where God's going to say, that's enough. That's enough for now. Take a break. 
Like, that's just the cycle of our lives. And, and you can look back on your life, and I guarantee you can see, like, there have been times when it's been really, really, really hard, and you've had to rely on God fully. There's been other times where you're like, you know what, that was, that was fairly easy. That was great. I love that. It was so encouraging, right? That's just the way that our lives are. God's going to lead us through hard part. He's going to lead us through some, some easier parts. The focus is, though, is as we go through those hard seasons that we're focused on who God is and what he's trying to teach us through that. It's interesting, too, like, Jesus, who wrote this story, right? Like, we're reading this, and we're like, Matthew wrote this story. We know that. How did he get it? He had to get it from Jesus. Like, Jesus was the only guy that was there, right? Like, if Jesus didn't tell us this, then we wouldn't know. And so, right, as you're reading this, you're like, Jesus is actually aware of the fact that maybe not in the moment, but he, he specifically communicated to his disciples because he felt like they needed it and were his disciples. And so that's a part of us needing it, right? Like the fact that Jesus communicated that so that we would understand. And so as we go through these things, like these aren't things that just like, oh, I guess Matthew wanted us to know this. Like Jesus told us this and this is part of what we can learn from it, right? And I, I think one of the big ones for that is empathy, not that we learn to have empathy, because that's good, but I don't think that's the point here. But actually that Jesus has empathy for us. Like Jesus actually understands what we go through. It's not like an abstract. It's not like Jesus as God's like, I feel like I understand what a creator went through. But Jesus became a human being and walked through the temptations, right? Like any temptation that we deal with, it, Jesus also dealt with it. Not maybe specifically, but at, a, at an overall level. Like Jesus had intense physical need, like he's starving to death, and he's, he denied himself. He said, that physical need is less important than what God has called me to do. Like, you look in our culture, we don't, we don't say no to anything physical that we want. Like, we just don't, right? A lot of our temptations are, this is a thing that I physically desire. How do I respond to that? And Jesus is like, you don't have to give in. If you're a child of God, you can walk away from that. You can rely on the word of God and walk away from the thing that you think that you have to have. And, and the other things too, like what's the easy path? What's the fast path? And Jesus is like, you don't have to go through that. You, don't you can walk the difficult path of obedience to God. You have that ability. I did it. I want to walk with you through that. Right? Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? Let us then come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus understands what you're going through. He's not going to be a jerk about this. You come to him and you're like, Lord, I screwed up. This was hard. And Jesus is like, I know it's hard. I forgive you. Let's figure out a new path. Right? Like Jesus is, is there. He understands. He's struggled the way that we struggled. He's been through this stuff. There's not a thing that I'm facing that I'm like, Jesus, you just don't understand. You've never been through this. Jesus is like, I've been through way worse. Let me tell you. Right? And he's not going to like lord that over us, but he's going to say, I understand. Like, let's walk through this together. Another thing that, that emerges from this is we need to know Scripture. And we need to know scripture so well that it changes the way that we think. Like, the answers that Jesus gives here are not surface level answers. They're 
He thinks differently than the rest of the world because he's so full of, of what God has said. Like we say, like, oh, you need to know scripture. And I think in our brains, we're like, we should memorize. And that's just like how we respond. You should memorize the Bible. Sure, like that's a good thing. Then we're like, I'm bad at memory, so I guess I can't do that. And that's not really the point. The point is to be so immersed in what scripture is, like who God is and what he has said to us, that we just understand fundamentally what's wrong and what's right. That we don't have to think through like, I don't know, maybe the process, we're just like, no, that's inconsistent with what God called me to do. Jesus used the scripture to point out the issues behind the temptation. Like, he didn't confront the temptation head on. He was like, I see that temptation, but the real issue is the one beneath that, the desire that I have. I need to address that. And he fixes the back issue, like, in his brain, and then he's like, Satan, the answer is no because of X, Y, and Z. Like, Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to eat the bread because I'm not hungry. He's like, I'm not going to eat the bread because it doesn't glorify God. That's a different way of approaching it. In, in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes this. This is the NLT. I love the way it puts it. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. All of scripture helps us to understand what's wrong and what's right and how we can glorify God. So we have to be sort of fully immersed in scripture. We have to allow our relationship with God to be focused on what he calls us to rather than what we want. I'm not sure that this fits here, but Tim Keller tweeted it this week and it was really helpful, so I'm gonna put it here. <laughs> this is the point between the points. How do you change your behavior? This is what Tim tweeted Friday, I think. Change what you worship, right? So a lot of times what we focus on is just sort of like the base level and then we're tempted because we don't really understand what we worship. Like, we worship all these other things. Like, if Jesus worshiped his satisfaction, and he only worshiped God because God gave him satisfaction, he would have fallen into the temptation for the bread. Because he didn't worship God, he worshiped something else. And a lot of times we don't understand who God is and what he's doing, and that's why we slip. That's why we fall. If we don't allow scripture to form us, then we end up worshiping all the wrong things. We get confused about what we're supposed to be focused on and, and we, we end up spending our time and our energy and our talents on things that don't ultimately help us and they don't ultimately glorify God. We have to allow God's word to form what we do. Last thing, we already won. So we see Jesus battle Satan and we see Jesus drive him away, right? And Luke says, when, when Satan left Jesus, it was to find a better time to tempt him. So this wasn't the only time that Jesus tangled with Satan, but it's the time that we have recorded, right? So there's other times when there were struggles. But like we said at the front end, Jesus walked through temptation like we do and has already won the battle for us. So first of all, Jesus won the victory here, like in this passage, right? Like he faced Satan and he didn't fall prey to any of those temptations. But that wasn't the end. There were still more battles. Ultimately, Jesus didn't win in the wilderness. Jesus won on the cross. Like that's when Jesus actually won. Because Satan came and he was like, fine, I can't defeat you. I'm gonna kill you. And Jesus died, right? Like he allowed himself to be killed. He was God in the flesh. He allowed himself to be killed. But you know what? You can't kill the perfect God-man permanently, 
Like, it's not a thing. And so Jesus died on the cross. He, he was buried. Like, he was gone. And yet, because he's God, he's like, I'm done being dead. And he came out of the grave, and he's like, now what? Right? Like, I didn't sin. I can't die. I'm willing to take on anybody. Right? Like, that's the thing. And so when we look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we realize we don't have to fall to the temptation because we're with Jesus. If we have a relationship with Jesus, none of these temptations are things that can overwhelm us. Because ultimately, if we're faced with, you know, again, the bread, we're like, I'm going to starve if I don't sin. Then God's like, you can starve. I can raise you from the dead. It's not an issue. Like, it doesn't matter. And so what we realize is that a relationship with God is is the victory that we need over sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We can be done with sin. We're free from that. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But what? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the win. We don't just have the win in the wilderness, we have the win on the cross, and so we can celebrate now this morning like, we don't have to sin. We sin because we're foolish and we make bad decisions, but we don't have to sin. We have victory because of what Jesus has accomplished. So, to wrap it up, sorry, I'm running late. Uh, Uh, the three questions, so I did the three sets of questions, right? And they're all in pairs. So I want to give you the first question of every set. Nope, I'm going to give you the second question of every set first, and then we'll see how those kind of connect. So the three questions at the second part were, what are some things that I'm tempted to prioritize over my relationship with Jesus? What are areas of my life where I try to control what God will do? And what are some things that I'm tempted to do my way rather than the the way that God commanded? These are the questions that kind of reveal where our heart's at. Like, this is the question underneath, right? Like, I do these things, and ultimately, I know that they're not sort of the way that God called me to do them. So it's, it's not just what am I doing, but the why am I doing it. And so when we look at the reasons behind our sin, because here, we all sin. As much as we have victory in Jesus, we also know that we're not perfect, right? Like, we all struggle. And so really it becomes not just like, what's the sin that I'm dealing with, but what's the reason underneath it? How can I chop out the roots of this sin rather than just like try harder to not sin? And then if we look at the second question, we sort of see there's there's an issue underneath that we have to really focus on, right? So those three are like, how confident am I that God loves me in spite of circumstances? How confident am I that God is working for my good even when I can't see it? How confident am I that God's path is truly the best? What we realize if we truly have faith, if we truly understand who God is and what he's trying to do, then we can use that to defeat our sin. Because the thing that's in front of us, Jesus already accomplished for us, we can trust him to answer that. But we have to trust Jesus that much. And this isn't like, oh, if I have enough faith, I can just avoid temptation. No, if you have enough faith, if you understand who God is, then you can say, I don't have to sin because of what Jesus has already done for me. I can walk away because I know that whatever my need is or whatever, whatever I feel in this moment that's wrong, that's not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is that God loves me, he provides for me, he's gonna care for me, he's gonna walk with me through whatever this season is. So the question becomes sort of, how much do we trust God? How much do we trust his love? How much do we really believe that he loves us as much as he does? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for 
Jesus. We thank you for his example in the wilderness of, of not falling into temptation. That he was tempted, that he struggled, that he fought Satan and won. And not just there in the wilderness, but ultimately that he defeated him on the cross. That we have victory this morning because of what Jesus did on the cross. We don't have to sin. We don't have to listen to Satan. We don't have to listen to the lies that he pumps into our lives and our minds. We can focus on you and allow your word to transform us and, and be submitted to you. Uh, I pray that that would be the thing that we move toward, that our lives would be conformed to your, your image. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we wrap up the service, would you stand with us?